I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club episode 75, I Ooh. think, which is great. And Very exciting. Three quarters of a century. Three quarters of a century. And we, we had a bit of an interesting build up to this episode because I, I had two shows slated. Um, one, the, the main one was called Nine Innings to Cheyenne. <laughs> and I spent ages trying to find this TV show. So my first port of call was Just Watch, you know, the Australian website that tells you where stuff's streaming, nothing there. Then I did a bit of a Google search, nothing there. And then... I found out about Nine Innings to Cheyenne from Cheyenne, 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 Cheyenne. Basinger, Basinger. How do you you pronounce it? It's the capital of Wyoming, right? Yeah. Anyway, like I found out about it from Metacritic. And actually, let me get up the Metacritic description of it. I'll get it up and in here because the way in which we find our shows week to week is usually, but not exclusively, through Metacritic's calendar. So the way Metacritic describes this show is as follows. I'll just get it up. So the premiere date was meant to be Saturday. And the way Metacritic described it is this. Kevin Costner's first baseball Western (laughs) stars Costner as the coach of a team of outlaws. Who will catch up with them first? The law or the second place Deadwood Blue Stockings? Costner also directs, while the script for tonight's opener was glanced at by by Taylor Sheridan on his way to a pitch meeting. So once I'd exhausted JustWatch.com, couldn't see it there. Once I'd done a Google... And the Google search was uncanny, right? Because, like, literally nothing came up. And I actually looked up Nine Innings to Cheyenne Costner. And I got... The th- what I got back was there are limited search results for this. So then I, I looked up Kevin Costner's latest project. Because, you know, he's left Yellowstone. And I found that his latest project was a Civil War film. So I started to wonder, could this be an April Fool's Day? A, a, a April Fool's prank? And because so, it's funny, like they've been a, a little bit hinky, the description on, on Metacritic. So apparently the, the channel it's, it's streaming on is Paramount for Dads. But to be fair, there are so many weird spin-offs these days and so many weird like subsidiary channels that I don't know, I, I, I was taken in. And, and sure enough, if you go to the Metacritic page for April the 1st, every show is a parody. And some of them are pretty obvious. Some of them are really obvious. But there's one. here's another one that was kind of that I... I when I read it, I was like, oh, that's unusual. But I just believed it. Um, to Boldly Go, did you read this one? No. So, so uh, let me read you the description of To Boldly Go. And I was going to suggest that for this week as well. A portion of the second unit team behind the recent miniseries, The Offer, returns with a 13-episode reenactment of the behind-the-scenes efforts to make J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek movie. <laughs> Seth Rogen stars as Abrams, alongside Dave Franco as Chris Pine, Timothy Chalamet as Zachary Quinto, Zachary Quinto as Leonard Nimoy, Laverne Cox as Zoe Saldana, Edgar Wright as Simon Pegg, and Andy Serkis as the ghost of Gene Roddenberry. Now, it's almost plausible. So I just, that, that's just a weird kind of backstory about the Pilot Club procedure this week, which is, I, I spent ages trying so to find you, these two you shows. You read some obvious parodies and thought they were real TV well, yeah, shows. So, like, so I, 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 I called Andrew to tell him about this uh, a couple of days ago, and Andrew's immediate response was like, oh, they got you. They got you. But they got you real good. But during the week, <laughs> baseball. Western. During the week, I talked to you about nine innings to Cheyenne. I told you it was a baseball western, and you're like, "Yeah, sounds good." So I'll be honest, I wasn't listening that closely, and I didn't have the context that that, that you did. Yeah, and uh, I think like, in retrospect, this is a real gotcha moment. This feels like plausible. <laughs> this feels like plausible deniability in your part because we actually discuss. But also, I kind of want to see nine innings to Cheyenne. 
Like, well. I, I, I want a Kevin Costner baseball western <laughs> that, you know, involves him and a gang of misfits making their way towards Wyoming, <laughs> like, while they're being... Like, yeah. so, well, they did end up building the actual field from Field of Dreams yeah. and doing playing a professional exactly. uh, baseball game exactly. in the midst of the cornfield, so... And I guess, like, there was something about these parodies that just spoke so, so well to our era of content and channels because mm. like we live in a tv era where, where basically anything can plausibly get made yeah and you can actually see a, a series about that like we also live in an era i think where tv showrunners are kind of keen to commemorate anything about the past or to yeah. historicize the recent past in any way so remember we talked a, a, a couple of months ago about how there was this wave of tv shows that periodized the 2010s in terms of scams and hacks and frauds yeah you know like the we work stuff and the uber stuff you know that's not a scam but like you know the inventing anna so it felt kind of plausible to me that there might be a period drama about the first star trek film that's now 15 years ago so i don't know yeah it just they were and some of the other parodies are much more obvious but those two i thought really stuck out as series that conceivably could be you know, made and yeah. also Paramount for dads. I mean, I, I can see spin-off channels like that. Like Paramount I, is all, is is really Paramount AMC are already really dad dad centric channels. And, and something we've noticed too, right? As we've been, you know, we, you and I both have all the major streaming channels, but it you know more and more there'll be shows say on Amazon that require some kind of add-on subscription mm, to access mm. them. So yeah, like I we were both taken in. We were both completely fooled, both completely yeah. flummoxed well. by this. April. Look, I say, if anyone from Metacritic is listening, like you got both of us <laughs> equally, and I feel like if we anyone's were... planning to play a prank, know that Billy is a very easy mark. <laughs> yeah. I, I told you, Andrew was like nine. Andrew was like nine years to Cheyenne. Sounds great. I'm a hard in. I think I might have actually read out to you the plot description. You were like, it sounds great. So either you weren't listening, which is the way you've spun it, or I think you were also taken. It's like just as a sidebar. Um, a while back, Drew and I watched the film *Color of Night*, the yeah. Bruce Willis film. And look, I didn't see the twist coming. <laughs> the twist was great, but even after the twist had been revealed, yeah. you were still confused. Look, it's an extraordinary you were still twist. It's an extraordinary <laughs> twist. But Drew, Drew was so cocky. I had to go back and forensically explain that. Drew twist. was so cocky, but you know, and, and insisted he he saw the twist the first time around. But you know, you watch it when you're like 15, so we have no way of knowing that. We have no way of knowing. <laughs> That you understood the twist when I you was first eleven, saw it. and I picked it up pretty early on. Yeah, early on I, I, don't, I don't know about that. There was so much cockiness about that twist. But look, I shout out like nothing's to Cheyenne. Can someone make it? Because I, I, I would watch that. Like I, I was a little bit disappointed that that wasn't actually a real show. Yeah, well, if Taylor Sheridan glanced at it. I'd probably be a hard in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and speaking of Taylor Sheridan, that's actually a bit of a segue to our next show, or first show of the week. Sorry, which which isn't a Taylor Sheridan show, but kind of feels like it should be. Like it, it feels like it's kind of part of the broader Sheridan verse. Um, partly because I feel like Kiefer Sutherland and Kevin Costner fulfill exactly the same niche now. I feel like that's true. Like, I think when I was younger, I thought they were the same person. Yeah, I mean, I feel like even. In the day, back in the day, they were somewhat differentiated. Yeah. But now I feel like they're the same person. H- halfway through watching this pilot, I realised that I was assume, like, I, re- I was like, oh, it's Ke- Kiefer Sutherland, not Kevin Costner. <laughs> like I was actually just, I went into just watching it as if it was a Kevin Costner joint. Yeah. So they both bring a kind of craggy solemnity to any proceedings, don't <laughs> yeah, they? <laughs> yeah. They've both seen things. <laughs> they've seen so much. Um, so the show is called Rabbit Hole. It's uh, created by Glenn Ficarra and John Requa. Um, Interesting. Do you know the the backstory of Glenn Picaro and John John Requa? I, I recognise the two names. What what have we seen? So they're a writing the... team and yeah. somewhat and sometime directing team, mm. primarily known for their their light comedic takes on modern uh, contemporary issues. For example, mm. Crazy Stupid Love. 
oh. uh, whiskey tango foxtrot, the oh. Tina Fey one in Afghanistan. Two of the so worst. light, satirical. I say two of the worst <laughs> three-word title films ever made. Oh, Crazy Stupid Love. That was so ins- I, that was so insipid. Like that was. I so- kind of liked it. No, 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 no. Thanks though. No, that was. Oh, I, that was like a film which uh, I look. We can do a whole podcast about what I didn't like about Crazy Stupid Love. Um, well, this is actually a bit of a change in direction then, isn't it? So, um, That's it, right. It's a thriller. It's a corporate espionage thriller. Um, and it stars Kiefer Sutherland as a guy called John Weir. Mm. And his, yeah, his, his, his field is intelligence. And mm. what he excels in doing is extracting data to help with financial acquisitions and financial transactions. He's kind of a lone wolf. Um, he operates a small team. Uh, one of the kind of plot points in the in the pilot is a large intelligence corporation or a large corporation wanting to get him in as their main intelligence man. Mm. I mean, him saying he likes the kind of small scale stuff that he does. And look, it's an interesting pilot because it's quite murky and opaque. Oh, for the absolutely first, it is, yeah. First 20 or 30 minutes. But then I think it kind of congeals into some really incredible and really compelling plot points. Yeah. So the central, I guess, hook is that Kiefer Sutherland is approached by an old contact of his and says, I need you to do a one-time intelligence job. And the job is kind of interesting because on the one hand, the job, there's a whole lot of data at stake, right, in this job. It's, a, it's, it's a, the whole data sphere, that whole virtual world, um, you know, it's very high stakes in terms of that. But the actual job requires getting two people together in real time and real space. Mm. So it's kind of complicated to go into the reasons why, but the head of this corporation, the CEO, whoever says to Kiefer Southern, I need you to get documentary footage of these two people in the same place at the same time. Mm. And when Kiefer Sutherland takes it back to his team, they quickly realise it's not enough to use Photoshop because, you know, cell tower pings can contradict it. They actually need to get the two people together, you know, in actuality. So that sets the stage for, I guess, the vibe of the episode, which is on the one hand... This kind of world of virtual big data is at stake. On the other hand, there's this thing that has to happen in physical time and space. Mm. And the two kind of converge. And then one of the people who's involved in this kind of get-together ends up being murdered. And Kiefer Sutherland is, for some reason, framed for it. We don't know yet and has to go on the run. So that's kind of what's happening narrative. And look, I thought there were some really great narrative hooks here. Mm. Um, and it feels like part of the vibe of the show, I guess, is data segueing in and out of the corporeal world. So mm. data entering the physical world, going back to the vi- the virtual world. And that's kind of embedded in the style of the episode, which has lots of jump cuts mm. and often jump cuts in the same scene. So you just have this sense of the physical world fracturing, rupturing, then resetting itself. I thought, it's funny, for the first 10 minutes, I was like, is this going to be like really turgid, opaque television? But mm. then it became really exciting. I thought like a really good thriller. I was I was in by yeah. the end. It's very inventive, mm. isn't it? Yeah. And the way it deals with the modern conflation of virtual and, and real, mm. and in particular, I guess, the way that they congeal to to create a, an augmented reality mm. is, I think, quite prescient. Mm. So the, the best scenes are the ones here where the virtual world is directing action and movement through the cityscape in, yep. in you know, physical real time. Mm. So the way now that that, that immaterial world can control in particular people's movement through space, mm. their their instantaneous reactions, um, I think is is adds an extra element to this mm. espionage um, genre. And and for that reason I think that, you know, it's all good. 
but the central set piece is the scene where they arrange the meeting between the, or the, the meeting between these two people. So it takes place outside a hotel, and all these physical and virtual strategies converge to make these two people come together at just the right time. And mm. my only criticism of the episode, I guess, is that I wanted more of that. Yeah, like more of those set pieces where he's engineering stuff. Yeah, in in the physical and virtual world, but also it feels like the episode is set in this kind of slightly dissonant space between them. It hasn't, it's like the virtual and physical haven't quite converged yet. No. So in that messy space is where the episode kind yeah. of unfolds. There's a, there's a sense here, I think, which is, I think, different from other espionage mm. thrillers where the virtual has a kind of a priori existence mm. um, and it precedes the material world mm. and it is calling directions. It's directing, it's mm. almost like... Um, creating stage directions for the real mm. world. So there's one scene in particular where, you know, there's a, a virtual message sent to someone and directing his actions. Mm. And other times where where we're literally being told, you know, at, in, in instantaneously what a character, how a character should react, where they should go, mm. what they should do to this person um, and so forth. So there's a real conflation of these two worlds mm. and a choreography directed by the, the virtual world, mm. which I think is, is something unique a unique twist on this genre. That's a good way to put it. Like it's almost like here that it's almost like in it's almost like data has become a natural resource that has to be harnessed. Mm. So data, you've talked about having like an a priori kind of existence. It's like data is a flow that is now just out there, mm. independent of anyone's agency, mm. which also means that harnessing into it and jacking into it is no longer a kind of there's no longer an ethical dimension to it. No, it's just a resource there for the taking. It's funny too, like with the stuff you were saying about surveillance, like this, it reminded me a lot of like the new Hollywood anxiety about surveillance and particularly um, the Anderson tapes. Have you seen that Sidney Lumet film? I haven't, no. The basic vibe of that film is that Sean Connery comes out of a prison stint, like it's like, I don't know, four or five years. And in the, the time that's elapsed, suddenly New York has been suffused with surveillance equipment. And, you know, by our standards, that surveillance equipment seems pretty primitive. Mm. But all of a sudden... It's like he was in jail for just this period of surveillance intensification. And so the, he, he, the main character, played by Sean Connery, and the film itself is like really paranoically aware of surveillance devices, wherever they might be. And this kind of felt like that vibe, but at a later iteration. So I don't think I've seen a series in a long time where there was like so much just footage of surveillance cameras hanging in space, mm. of recording devices that were kind of trained on people like this. It's like that new Hollywood anxiety about a surveillance society. But yeah, like at that next level where to, to riff on something you've said, it's almost like the surveillance has become sentient now. Mm. And it's something that has to be navigated as it ebbs and flows. Right? Like you can't physically elude it anymore. No, that's um, right. That's right. Mm. And and yeah, there's there's a capitalistic quality to the surveillance mm. as well. The data's being, being harnessed and mm. monetized and having an edge and ability to, to manipulate it, control its flows. Mm is is where he gains his competitive advantage so Kiefer Sutherland plays an, an interesting role in the sense he's he's it's yeah virtual corporate espionage mm. I, so I he's, he's he's basically manipulating um, insider trading insider information mm. to to sabotage different mm. um, share floats and and corporations and so forth but so it's all about because he sees it as just a resource out there yeah he has no compunction yeah that's right that's right so it's all about him gaining inside information and mm. the way he does is often by manipulating mm. what is in the inside what is on the outside mm. and conflating those two those two worlds and for that reason i mean it's interesting too because it comes with its own 
unique vocabulary too. So a great quote that I wrote down. Look, maybe this is this is par for the course for people who work in this area. But there's a, there's a moment where a character says, "Data drives everything." It's the biggest commodity in private intelligence. Mm. So like that idea of private intelligence being a market, data being a commodity, that that whole new vocabulary to describe it is a big part of the show. I was going to say too, like it, it reminded me a lot of Michael Mann. So I feel like in a lot of Michael Mann's films, you have this this sense of especially men, like the, the there's, there's, there's like a melodrama in which men have to navigate and find a way to mediate a new kind of flow mm. or a new kind of global flow. And I feel like this reminded me, maybe it's because I watched it quite recently, a lot of Black Hat. Mm. Like oh, the, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just, that's just in my, just because I've watched that one quite, for the first time, watched it quite recently. Like that sense that masculinity can no longer be surveillance itself or can no longer have that kind of omniscience itself. So what it has to do is to find a way to, to kind of harness and ride the flow. So even mm. something like that, that, the structure of collateral which has that just it's all like one continuous taxi ride through the city thief feels like one single trajectory through the city it just it reminded me of that kind of michael mann melodrama of like i guess it's a late noir melodrama of isolated alienated men whose only way to deal with this overwhelming out there mm. that's around them is to kind of ride harness its flows mm. so it reminded mm. me like in a good way i thought of it's almost like I would have liked something like Tokyo Vice to be closer to this yeah. in terms of Michael Mann. Uh, yeah. On that note too, like I feel like Paramount Plus definitely has a look now. Yes. I feel like it's a very distinctive look. <laughs> it's a bluish, so, it's yeah. a bluish tinged yeah. kind of. Uh, how would you? It's. I mean, there's a lot of. It's there. It is. It has definitely a masculine bent. Yes. The streaming service. I was going to say Paramount Plus. Is, is it too far to say that Paramount Plus is? what noir looks like in the modern era. I mean, like, there's a Western stuff of yeah. Sheridan, but it's almost like is Sheridan's... It's something Has about... Paramount Plus become a pay-in to waning masculinity? Yeah, well, I think, <laughs> I, think, I think definitely. But, like, there's something... It's like it's the Western plus noir. Like, it's something about the heroic male gaze mm. that's now melancholy and hauntological or something. But, mm. yeah, like, there's something about... But I, I was going to say something big. Is it something bigger? Is it like Paramount Plus is the streaming service that's most nostalgic for cinema. Mm. Because they, noir and western, they're such big cinematic statements. Yeah. And that, Especially the, when they were revived. Yes. The neo-western, uh, neo the the um, revisionist noir. Mm. They're all big 90s genres. Paramount yes. definitely has a kind of 90s sheen to it, doesn't that's it? That's interesting, yeah, the Paramount revival of that. Because remember even the pilot of 1923 we watched last week, like or the week before, when, when did we watched that? Um that was like, I don't know, like it was slow and it was cinematic. And so often, nearly always, that slow cinematic style, I think, often doesn't work. But it nailed it. Like it was yeah. like it was like watching film. So maybe it's something bigger than noir yeah. and cinema, uh, bigger than noir and Western, bigger than genre. There's something about Paramount Plus that is, it's committed to the cinematic mm. in a way mm. that I think like Netflix is not really. No. And no. Disney Plus is not really in its, in its new content. Like it's, it's a great place for films, but... Mandalorian, Disney original shows, they're not very cinematic. That's true, that's true. Yeah. I think Paramount Plus is TV, TV that, yeah, gestures towards cinema. Yeah. The cinema aesthetic. Interesting as well, mm. um, not being a 24 fan, but clearly this this protagonist... Absolutely. Um, ...played by Kiefer Sullivan, private espionage agent, is playing off his... It's a later... Yep. ...his, you know, 24 star image. Absolutely. Uh, do, do you think this is a later incarnation of 24? I think absolutely. Or is it a subversion of that role and not, not being a... 
a yeah, fan of so that I think I think what you see in twenty four is anxiety about information post nine eleven, mm. especially. Yeah, this definitely it's a definitely a continuation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Okay. So look, I'm. I'm in with this. I thought this was really exciting and interesting. Yeah, I, yeah. I, again, after the conceptual, you know, a narrative confusion that I experienced mm. in the first ten minutes, mm. the, in terms of timeline, in terms mm. of what Kiefer Sutherland actually does, mm. his interactions with other characters. Once that started to coalesce, I thought this was very entertaining, yeah. and, 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 um, and exciting. And it becomes a wrong man narrative as well. Yep. Really exciting. Also, there's a bit of a fugitive element in there, yeah. isn't there as well? So look, yeah, I'm, I'm a hard in. I thought this was great. I'm an in. Okay, on to our next series. And returning to one of our favourite streamers, mm-hmm. Apple TV+. Plus. Mm. So this, uh, the next series is called The Big Door Prize. It is a comedy series. It's based on a relatively famous novel by M.O. Walsh. Uh, it premiered this week. And it stars... Chris O'Dowd. Chris O'Dowd, Gabrielle Dennis, Damon Gupta, Josh Segarra. So the premise mm. is that... Uh, Chris O'Dowd's character is living a relatively ordinary quotidian life as a a high school teacher in the small town of Deerfield. I assume that's in Illinois. Mm. And um, he has a loving wife and a a loving teenage daughter. It is the precipice of his 40th birthday. and And coinciding with his 40th birthday, a mysterious machine appears in a local grocery store that claims it's able to predict the destinies of those who put in a quarter and program it in. And the destinies are framed as this being your your greatest potential. Mm. So it, it unveils to you, not just predicts your future, but predicts the greatest potential for your future. Like your kind of ceiling. Yeah, absolutely right. So your ceiling. So it's 10 episodes long, The although uh, Apple only released the first three. So after, thereafter, it will be released in one episode installments. I think this is interesting because we watched quite recently another series about middle-aged ennui. Mm. Uh, and the name just escapes me at the moment. I feel like we've seen so many. Like we Lucky, saw, lucky. We, we, we saw the one with um, James Corden. We saw that we saw Shrinking. Yes, we Shrinking, yes. Lucky, lucky Hank. Lucky, lucky Hank. Lucky, lucky Hank, lucky that's Hank. of course. Was it Lucky Hank? You lucky Hank, yeah. Yeah, they're all, they're all the same dude, basically. <laughs> The Bob Odenkirk one I thought was better than the others, yeah, lucky- just because Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> well, Lucky Hank was a bit sharper in terms yep. of its writing. But this is a return to this comic you know, yep. midlife crisis trope yep. that we've seen, especially a white, middle-aged, mm. uh, you know, middle-class protagonist in a genre that we might have thought had run out of gas. Mm. So the Apple TV We, we may have been twist, right to say that. <laughs> the Apple TV twist is the, the whole science fiction element. Yep. That's foreshadowed in this in this pilot, but not really explored mm. in much depth. Mm. So this is a very lighthearted, <laughs> very lighthearted uh, portrayal of. Ever since Fleischman, I'm just dis- <laughs> ever since ever since our disagreement about Fleischman is in trouble. I'm just I'm just like preparing for you to love everything like it was so confronting to me that you liked Fleischman's in trouble it was so it went against everything I knew everything I held to be true and right and good in this world so everything Fleischman I just I you can't predict it I'm just assuming you love it and I'm open I'm open to it I'll, I will politely share my opinion look I have to say that this is this is a gentle genial <laughs> remake of a book that doesn't it's not really earth-shattering, no. and nor does it really it feels, attempt to be. And it feels literary, doesn't it? It feels like something that's written. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So 
Look, I can't really say whether I liked it or not. I found it just quite bland. It's really, inter- it's interesting, isn't it? Because like, to to give it credit, I thought the premise was quite good with yeah. the machine. And at the end, when the main characters get their destinies from the machine, that stuff kind of worked. Mm. And you know, also to give it its due, like it starts with the first five minutes are of this guy, his family, and his work, and. They may be the most annoying five minutes we've watched on Pilot Club. Like, the characters are all uniformly obnoxious. But then, that happens to be his birthday. And then the, after those first five, ten minutes, we see the day after his birthday. And, and all that jouissance kind of dissipates. And you see it. Part of me wonders whether because that, that ideal, the day of his birthday, was so, was so hyperbolic, was so mm. you know, rose-tinted, whether that was reality or not. Mm. And part of me was hoping that this series would play around with our perceptions of reality and that maybe, to make it interesting. Maybe that's fantasy. Yeah. I, I had a less kind of high concept approach to it. I I could register mentally that that first five, ten minutes was set up as fantasy or whatever and the rest of the show was a counterpoint. Yeah. But it annoyed me so much <laughs> that I just was out. It's like, it's like okay, you've, I know that was just the prelude, but I found the prelude so annoying, I don't care how you deconstruct it. <laughs> Something else that was, look, you know, something else that was blockage for me here too is like, I think like, I'm actually just not that into Chris O'Dowd. Mm. Like, I feel like Chris O'Dowd, like, he is a dramatic actor. Like, he's, <laughs> he's always like a bit too dour to be funny and a bit too kind of quirky to be taken seriously. So, and I think, mm. I think sometimes dramatic actors can really work. So I think Sandra Bullock is a great dramatic actor. Like, mm. in any serious role, Sandra Bullock's got a twinkle in her eye. Mm. And in any comic role, she feels like a fully fleshed out dramatic character. So I think Sandra Bullock, great dramatic actor. Just with Chris O'Dowd, like, there's just always, like, just watching it, I just had this moment of realisation where I was like, I've never really enjoyed him in anything. Like, I like Bridesmaids, yeah. but kind of despite him. Okay. E- even John Hamm in Bridesmaids, I think, is better than Chris O'Dowd. It's just, it's like this... I don't know. It's like this hangdog, jowly, dowdy, you know, you know, I'm, you know, like lovability. Yes. It's like not, it's lovability. It's a puppy dog. He has a puppy dog. Puppy dog lovability. That's like, it's not really funny and it's not really dramatically powerful. Mm. It's just, it's like, just like brownie points for being a nice guy or something. I I, I don't find him, like, I don't dislike him, but just for me, he cannot carry a show. Like, I, I don't find him compelling as a protagonist. Yeah. But I'm completely open to it, to it if you do. <laughs> and I'm fully prepared for you to absolutely love this show. No, no. I Look, I have to say, while it might be narratively inventive down the track, the mm. pilot certainly doesn't suggest as much. And I think it leaves too much on the table. It, it, I feel like after a certain point to like all the eccentricity, I was just like, all right, all right. Like, okay, okay, I get it. Like you got a theremin for your birthday. I also thought it was like, it was very visually abrasive to watch. Like it was very okay. hyperactive. There's lots of stuff always happening in the background, the foreground. Like it was cluttered. Yeah. It was very cluttered in a, in a kind of, in just a jarring way. But yeah, I, I just... I just thought it was kind of meh. And look, it's funny. If I could, I'm going to actually anticipate something a little bit for next week. Mm. We won't discuss it now. One of our shows next week is Unstable, the Rob Lowe show. Mm. Have you seen that yet? I have not. I'm foreshadowing a little bit what I'm going to say here, but like that's that's a show where Rob Lowe's manic energy, I think, whatever you think about the show, carries it. Like, yeah. you know, he's so manic and so weird. Whereas here it's just like, it was just like watching... I mean, I think these midlife, you know, dad bod kind of shows, like <laughs> they stand or fall ultimately on the charisma of, of the, the person. Lead. And like, yeah. I just, same with James Corden. Like, it's just, it's jowl face. Like, yeah. it's just that hangdog jowl face. 
it's just kind of tedious to watch. Mm. And like also mm. watching it, I was like, I think so bad. Like you got a really nice wife, you know, you got a few issues. Who doesn't? You got a really nice daughter. You know, you can't be in every single part of her life. What parent is? You've got a job that's not entirely satisfying. Well, you're not, you know, that's, you know, not everyone has their ideal job. Not everyone has a job that's going to make them millions of dollars and provide them with fulfillment every single millisecond. Yeah. You live in a lovely town. You you own a house. Perk up. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? That's true. Get some some frigging perspective. That's true. That's true. It's like This is 40. Yeah. It's like, I think, like the characters in This is 40. I was like, I think you're going to be just fine. (laughs) You're going to be fine. You're not in the poverty line. No. And like, and not to be that guy who's like, oh, first world problems. But it's like, I just, I just didn't actually understand what was so bad. Yeah. Like, it's true. In this show, like, it's like, you got interest, you got hope. Midlife crisis, but where's the crisis yeah it's just like an empty it was like an it was like it's almost like the midlife crisis narrative you know has become just a placeholder for significance yeah for just empty significance and it's like well it's like shrinking it's like okay <laughs> this, this was in terms of all the shows that we've recently seen especially the midlife crisis shows this was the closest in spirit and yeah. in comic tone to shrinking. to shrinking but i thought shrinking was actually better than this just because it had harrison ford <laughs> and i don't to be fair like just because it at least had some kind of premise worked into it, which is like the therapy session. Yeah. Like it had, yeah. it was ostensibly a workplace comedy as well. Yeah. Whereas apart from the machine, <laughs> this is just, this is just Chris O'Dowd riding his scooter to work each day and recognizing that he's not always totally on a high because of riding a scooter. It's just like scooter anxiety. When I saw that scooter, I was like, oh boy. This is a real The sort of, scooter's going to be a thing. <laughs> this is a real mammal text. I was, ba- I was about Minecraft. to say, I was about to say, it's a mammal text. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's just like... It's a banal midlife crisis. Oh, yeah. Like, so you're doing more, you're doing a bit more individual fitness. Like, oh, uh, yeah. And like... And like I said, like I, I take your point. Like it's quite possible those opening five minutes have some kind of high concept bent. Like it, it, at the very least, they're a fantasy. Clearly, mm. some, but they may actually literally be a fantasy. Mm. But after they were done, I was just like, I'm just out. <laughs> this these opening five minutes. You push the ejector button. I mean, part of it's like if this is what the show's fantasy is, this is what he's aspiring towards. This absolutely obnoxious, like you know, character. I, good luck to you. But I'm yeah. I'm going to go and watch. You know, I'm going to go and watch Golden Girls. <laughs> That's true. There's there's not an acerbic under subtext no. to this that there needs to be to really cut this character down to size. Yeah. yeah. This self self pitying character. There needs to be a really yeah. like an offsider or a best friend who's yeah. really someone, who's really bitter and rancorous. Someone with sass sass. Yeah. Yes. Someone sassy. Yes. There's there's an absence of sass here. It's just like to ameliorate Chris 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 O'Dowd's you know yeah, jowls. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just, oh, just his puppy dog likability or gestures towards likability. And just like it's also just his accent. Like it just it's the accent in like I was like. The accent in Deerfield was also a gimmick as well. It's like, if we're actually doing a show about the American midlife crisis, let's just cast someone American. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not saying it, I'm not trying to racially profile there, but, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, part of it was like, is, 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 this, is, this, is this wacky Irish guy actually an accurate cross-section of middle America? Like, it's just, it's just, it's just this injection of eccentricity. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. This is one of those shows where, like, the more it went on and the wackier it became, my face just, like... Just like cold, stony disapprobation. I just was like the more it tried to kind of endear itself to me, like just the colder the more I became. Repellent you found it <laughs> yeah, exactly. The more offensive, the more offended I was by it. Look, I, I have to, I, I have to say, just to counter that, I, I think this is innocuous rather than yeah, yeah, actively. No, I'm, offensive. I'm just having, I'm just having I, fun I think, with it. You know, shrinking. I thought was. I thought was was much more on the nose than this, but I, I found this just very bland. Yeah, it's boring. I, I feel like 
I feel like if you've got a big, you know, high concept premise, then just you gotta you gotta reveal you gotta give us a twist in the pilot. It's like and look, yeah, and again to give credit where credit's due, the idea of this machine pumping out people's ceilings of aspiration, great. That could be a great small town, you know, regionalist ensemble drama. Just take Chris O'Dowd out of it. <laughs> Why do we need Chris O'Dowd as a part of that? Just go back and, you know, do the IT crowd reboot or something. Just, it's funny, like, I just made me realize, like... You I see of Chris, Chris O'Dowd contaminating your Americana. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I like my Americana pure. But even in, even in like, Bridesmaids, like, I love Bridesmaids, but the kind of bum note for me, Chris O'Dowd, like, he's, he's good. He's, he's well-written, he's well-written, but, like, compared to, like, Kristen Wiig, Rose Byrne, yeah. Mia, Mia Rudolph, uh, Mia Rudolph, sorry, John Hamm, he's just... It's Blandsville. He's just there. He's just yeah. there. He's just there yeah. to do quirky Irish stuff. So, yeah. like you know, just get, just go and be in the Banshees of Inner Sharon. Like you, know, that the shtick will work. That <laughs> shtick. That's exactly. Your, that's his level of shtick. You know, like oh, we're rowing. Oh, you're rowing. Like like Martin McDonough, like Oscar Bates shtick. Just that's that's. It's like it's really it's really hokey Irish stuff too. It's like, true. You know, compared to something like Bad Sisters, which is great Irish drama, and like mm. someone like Klaus Bang, like such a mm. great character in that. Well, perhaps does this version of hokey Irishness does this play in Middle America? Maybe it is does. This stereotype, maybe of, it does of Irishness. Really, yeah. what plays there? It's like the Chicago connection, yeah. only the lonely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting. It doesn't play for me. No, I was like I said, face stony. <laughs> you were Sto- played out. I was it played itself out. I was after such five a minutes. I was such a hard out for you. So <laughs> look, look, you're right though. It's innocuous, but it's it's just it's it's boring and it's yeah. bland. And In a crowded televisual landscape, this this does nothing to yeah. distinguish itself. But you know, you know that this has like got like ninety five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I know. And like that. It's I know. crazy. And again, not I'm foreshadowing yeah. next week a bit, but like yeah. it is crazy that this show with Rob Lowe has got like forty percent. On Rotten Tomatoes, and this has got ninety. Yeah, like it's, yeah. So if we put the the coin in the in the machine to predict the ceiling of this show, we'd it, have to say bland. It reminds me of some something someone I um no one said about a particular Australian novel. Everything just means so much. <laughs> just this leaden significance. So just everything is so meaningful. So yeah, I was just another heart out. <laughs> okay, on to our next show. So this is Time for uh, a slice of pipe and hot true crime. Exactly. Um. We, we do keep on coming back to true crime on this podcast, don't we? It's, it's a good default. Not like, much recently, though. No, that's true. Yeah. That's true. This is one of the, the few true crime docos that we've, that we've had a chance to, to review recently. First in a while. Um, yeah, so it's Waco, American Apocalypse, mm. and it's a documentary, I think only a three-part documentary it series. It is, it's short. Um, I guess directed and compiled by uh, Tiller Russell, and as the title suggests, it's about the siege at the headquarters of the Branch Davidians, led by David Koresh in 1993. Um, at just outside of Waco, Texas, and there's been a lot of content released about Waco. There has it's, been it's the Waco verse, the, the Waco verse, <laughs> exactly the extended Waco verse. And it's funny because this is you know, we've talked on the podcast at times. You know, we've watched quite a few shows that are about events that took place in the '90s and reflected on whether we remembered them happening at the time. Mm. And I have no real memory of Waco happening at I the time. I remember hazy news footage of the siege, okay. the final siege, okay, right. watching the compound, you know, go up in this giant conflagration. But interesting, but not beyond that. So it's funny. My first, you know, encounter with Waco was actually probably an early part of the the extended Waco verse. There was a documentary called Waco: The Rules of Engagement. Oh, okay. And I, I never yeah. saw it, but it was one of those films I almost saw. I think it was nominated for. The Academy Award for Best Documentary, right? And I, I never, I never saw it. But it, in, you know, when back in the day when you would look through the newspaper for film sessions, 
that that was playing for quite a long time at I think the Chauvel in Paddington. So right. it was one of those films I I came close to seeing quite a few times, but yeah. had no sense actually of what Waco was, or even that it was a place, let alone a yeah. siege or an it feels, event. It feels like they made a lot of made-for-television documentaries yes. or documentaries, you know, that are part of a longer series yep. of you know infamous hostage situation. I yep. feel like I've, I've read read about or heard about this story many many times before. And and yeah and. Partly because I think like it was a story that was like one of those major kind of news quilting points in, yeah. in the nineties. There was also a TV show called Waco, like yes. a couple of years ago, yes. a dramatization. So Taylor, Kitsch as, Taylor Kitsch as David Koresh, which so, I didn't actually see. No, I didn't see any of that. I think the um, reviews were quite mixed on it. Yeah, so I guess maybe it's useful to going to preface to say that you know, because there is this Waco verse every show about Waco has its own particular point of view, mm. and the events are quite contested too so just to give a little bit, bit of backstory about waco um the not the f not the fbi the uh what is it guns tobacco and alcohol alcohol tobacco and fire the atf yeah, atf conducted yeah. a siege at waco um partly because the branch davidians were actually let's just jump back a bit so the branch davidians are a christian se- christian sect established by david koresh well i don't think they were actually established by david koresh oh really so he yes was, I, I think so they were established in the 1930s, and he just happened to, to sort of launch something of a hostile takeover of them. I thought that the, the, the I think I thought the Davidians were established, and like the branch Davidians was like his branch of it. Okay, maybe it's like I think I think he was like a branch of the Davidian sect, maybe. Right. Okay. But, but anyway, he, that was something that I learned in this documentary. Yeah, so that he didn't actually found this organization. Instead, he took over it from a, an older lady. Okay. And there was a there was a war of kind of succession. Okay. And. And he assumed control over this. Okay, interesting. As a result of that, that's yeah. interesting. Because my, yeah, okay, but yeah. So, but yeah. So he so he's in charge of this cult, stockpiling enormous amounts of artillery. The ATF comes in, they storm the compound, and what follows is quite contentious in terms of you know the way in which the siege unfolded. So, what's interesting about this? There's two things from the outset, I guess, that are interesting about this documentary. Firstly, it features a lot of well, stock for, we're told it features a lot of footage that yeah. hasn't been seen before. It's hard to tell how much of it hasn't been seen before. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen most of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and second, it's interesting in that it, it's clearly, at least in this episode, quite procedural. So it's not really interested in the rights and wrongs of the case at the moment. So there's not a lot about Branch Davidian ideology. No. And there's not a lot about government culpability either. No. It's, it's mainly actually people from both sides describing survival. So in those yeah. early days of, in, in, on the first day of the siege, people who were inside the building and people who were a part of the government task force describing just the, the moment-to-moment experience of it and, I think and, that, and what it was yeah. like to survive. And I think that's what this, the point of differentiation in this documentary yep. is all the voices we hear from the Davidians themselves, yep. ranging from one of David Koresh's spiritual wives mm. to another one of the, the early, early members of the, mm. of the cult who was recruited from California mm. um, and hearing also uh, news broadcasters who are present on the scene. And this this made me wonder, like, are there still branch Davidians today? Like, does mm. the cult, does the sect still exist? Because some of the interviewees from inside the compound still seem tacitly, like, they don't talk a lot about their beliefs or a lot about their ideology. They talk mainly about just that immediate experience of survival. Yeah, they're but, quite sympathetic to Koresh too. Yeah, that, that, well, that exactly. So mm. you feel like, and it treads a fine line, like they're, they're sympathetic to him as a leader and as a as a siege victim, mm. there's less about them being sympathetic to him as a kind of ideologue. Mm. But you do sense that they're still 
believing that they're, they're still believers in the branch and the way they describe when they do refer to it occasionally the branch davidian outlook you sense that they do still believe in it so mm. it's interesting that the series kind of keeps a, a tacit dis- distance from their beliefs and doesn't say a lot so far about the culpability of the government either it's mainly just people from both sides describing how it unfolded so i think that leads to one of the strongest parts of this documentary which is people especially mainly government people recounting stuff that happened while we see the footage of it happen yeah so there's some people who are just and often it's quite extreme stuff so there's a a character for example who's describing climbing across the roof into you know the roof of the compound with direct in, in the face of direct fire mm. and that is actually caught on camera another scene of him being bundled in the front of an ambulance because there weren't enough wasn't enough you know ambulances to you know to kind of bring all the kind of people who were wounded back yeah so that kind of combination of first-person narration and actually actual footage of seeing it happen is really powerful. Yeah, I think that's mm. right. I think that's the closest thing we get to a, a kind of body cam aesthetic. Mm. Yep, exactly. So we have you know unprecedented proximity to the to the events, courtesy of the the barrage of, of news reporters who mm. were, who were present there. In particular, a news reporter who was really who was almost part of the siege, mm. given he was so close to the compound at the time. Mm. So it does foreshadow. You know the, the modern what what would there be um, a modern recount or a modern mm. um, recording of this, which is through police body cam footage? Because mm. I, I also noticed the most recent you know gun massacres there, they have police have actually released the body cam footage mm. of the first responders mm. to give you a sense of their also to I think um, try to improve the the public relations of of law enforcement mm. given they've been copped so much flack after Uvalde and Parkland for not responding. Mm. That's a really good way to put it. So you can kind of say that the series is almost the fantasy of the series that we had body cam footage at the time. Mm. And what it's trying to do is to, like, if, if that was the case, then there would be no question about procedure at all. So it's almost like that's the premise of the show, to, to try and get us as close as possible to that immediate footage of what's happening. That's right. That's right. To, mm. to yeah, to sort of unveil some of the, the mysteries about whether there was... And it doesn't explicitly deal with this, but just the footage mm. is sort of left there as a documentary mm. evidence as to whether this was overreach mm. by law enforcement or whether it was appropriate mm. proportional response given, you know, the, the nature of the, the weaponry and you know, the aggression of the, mm. the Davidians and so forth. So Maybe the brevity of the series speaks to that as well as what we're going to get basically is a compilation of footage yeah. rather than any extensive analysis no, or and discussion. No, I think that's uh, interesting as well. It. it adopts a very tight focus mm. on the 51-day period of the mm. siege. There's very little about David Koresh's backstory, mm. very little about the ideology of the Branch Davidians. Instead, it focuses on just the, the conflict and mm. the procedure associated with the negotiations because it gets into it very quickly doesn't it does, it? So it does. It's, there's very little preamble here. no and it's and in that sense it's there's something very efficient about it isn't it because it understands that it's taking part as place place as part of a broader waco verse assumes yeah. your knowledge of it and basically gives you additional documentary footage to help augment your opinion mm. the stuff here that i didn't know too so something that blew my mind was the postman angle yeah i know so yeah. I, I, people listening may know this but I, I didn't know that the reason it all went south was because the atf were approaching the compound just asked a, they couldn't find it because it's so remote i think at one point they described it as a very large structure in the middle of a very big a very big nothing so mm. it's really remote and they just kind of hailed down a local postman 
you know, like a walking postman, you know, it's really remote, like rural postman, this really remote area, and ask him where the compound is and say, look, they're planning a siege of it. I don't know why they told him that. Although, although <laughs> it was the news, the news broadcaster. It was a news broadcaster. Sorry, mm. the news. Ah, oh, the news. How broadcaster. they got tipped off that there was going to be a siege oh, is another question. Yes, yeah, so the news broadcasters asked him. Sorry, the news broadcasters asked him, without knowing that he was a member. Of the Davidians. The Davidians. That's one thing I didn't know. No. I didn't know that there were Davidians out there in the community working yeah. regular jobs and then returning to the compound. Exactly. So the sitcom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I, th- I think the, the big question is, you know, why why another Waco documentary? Mm. And I think we're wading into here mm. the you know ex- extremism, mm. far right, gun yep. control debate, yep. Yep. law enforcement, yep. use of powers, and so forth. Absolutely. So, yeah. We're interrogating this because of its prescience to mm. to contemporary contemporary events, and I think what was notable here, and mm. I, I, it's certainly not an apology for David Koresh, it it basically explains the actions of law enforcement by just displaying the documentary footage mm. and also delving into what the Davidians were actually doing mm. in terms of assembling this arsenal, but also um, converting a lot of the weapons from semi-automatic to automatic weapons. Mm displaying the destructive power of an automatic weapon mm. compared to even a semi-automatic weapon. Mm. So, well, didn't they say it was the biggest, the biggest gunfire, like biggest gunfire battle on American soil since the Civil War? So yeah, yeah. it's almost like you see in here a, a vision of what the future could be if gun laws go continue to go unregulated or yeah. not properly. Because I think, didn't this inspire the Oklahoma City bombing as well? It, it so did. I think that, it did. There um, were a whole series of Timothy sieges McVeigh, by... Yep. Christian secessionists yeah. mm. that resulted in further radicalization of mm. the of the far right. Mm. So I think that's the relevance here mm. of this series mm. to display or to I don't even think to to deal with in an even-handed way mm. what exactly happened, how first responders the the, the heroism of first responders mm. even if there is issues of um of overreach mm. um and also to to wade into this issue um Possibly the fact that this foreshadowed some of the more you know radicalized mm. far right yeah. wing. It's like a myth, know, a myth of origin about yeah about about um, gun gun control, religion, and increasingly you know um, hostility towards towards the government. Mm. It's like an origin point for our present, isn't it? That's right. So look, yeah, I, I'm I'm. What do you think? I'm a hard in on this. I thought this was really interesting and really compelling, and with only three episodes. I think that's right. I think. When you're a documentary like this, you've got to... It's almost either, a documentary film, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you've got to be either adopt a very broad palette mm. uh, approach, like mm. a kind of OJ Made in America mm. style exhaustive mm. um, strategy, or you you adopt a very tight focus, mm. you know, two, three episodes. And I think this is this is adopting the latter. And I think probably that's to its to its benefit mm. because we already know a lot about the background, backstory yep. of Waco. You know, focus on what you're bringing, what's new. Absolutely. To, you know, Basically, to proceedings. It's almost like a feature-length compilation of footage, isn't it? That's right. So, That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in. I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. I think this, I think this is interesting as well because we get a sense of um, the historicity of this gun mm. control debate, Christian fundamentalism and far-right mm. lunacy. So I think it's scary. It's mm. a scary forewarning about what potentially might come. Yeah, almost like an apocalypse of stockpiled weaponry that's right yeah that was great okay onto our pilot mm. onto our archive corner i mm. should say and this week we're doing the very iconic colombo mm. so there's there's a lot you can say about colombo i think there's been a i guess restoration of popularity and interest mm. in colombo given 
most recently Poker Face adopted a similar narrative structure. And also I think we're at a moment where people are starting to get a hankering for an older kind of episodic television. Mm. Like with so much, an almost infinite like menu of streaming options, the idea of watching a, you know, a self-contained episode on a weekly basis is actually quite comforting, Yeah, that structure. Yes, yes, that's right. So Columbo, if you've been living under a rock, uh, concerns uh, Peter Falk, who plays Lieutenant Columbo. He's a homicide detective mm. with the LAPD. Interesting backstory to this. There mm. were two pilots that were shot mm. as feature-length films that originally uh, rotated on NBC as part of the NBC mystery movie. Mm. And then thereafter, from uh, it, Columbo aired less frequently on ABC from 89 all the way to 2003. Mm. Yeah, there was. I, I remember vaguely... Like putting on the television one night at my, my grandparents' place in Griffiths. This is, this is where all my most primal television moments come from, Griffiths, because it was so quiet. You know, there wasn't a lot. You know, I'd love seeing my grandparents. There wasn't a lot to do. That The television was such a, a focal point. Yeah. I remember putting on the TV one night and we all watched a Columbo, like a special. I had, I had no real sense then of who he was or what it was. But yeah. I, I've, before I watched the episode mm. that we're profiling, I'd never seen Columbo okay. before. Not even in tiny extracts, not in any context. Wow. So it was completely new and novel to me. I associate it with that, you know, when we were at high school in the 90s and early 2000s, that, that period, that kind of after school, afternoon television, when you'd get these echoes of the 70s. Mm. So shows like MASH, mm. Columbo. Whenever I think of the 70s, I think of that after school television. Yeah. That television time slot. Of course. Yeah, because even though Columbo started in the late 60s yeah. and went all the way into the 2000s. It's probably, yep. its aesthetic is most closely yep. correlated with the 1970s. Fifty Shades of Brown. Yeah. <laughs> there is so much brown in, in this. Everything is brown. Everything's That's a true. particular shade of brown. Brown to beige. The yep. brown to beige the spectrum. spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's, I think, most narratively interesting about this series uh, is that it, it popularised a format of detective story, which was inverting the usual structure. Mm. And it was referred to um, by various critics as the how catch him mm. so this genre begins so as opposed to the whodunit as opposed to the whodunit so usually uh will, the commission of the crime will be will be shown in the first third of the series so there's no who there's no whodunit we already know who committed the crime instead the central narrative pivot is how does the detective actually come to this realization and how do they find enough incriminating evidence to actually ensure that they're charged and later convicted. And something I thought was really elegant in this episode is although you see a lot of the crime in that first act, that prelude, you don't see the whole crime. So like a, a little bit of it is left up to your imagination to kind of yes. like that, that last piece you don't see. So there's that little bit of suspense that carries over as well. Yes, that's right. That's right. So this obviously gave birth to the very iconic character of Columbo himself. One, so, more, one more thing. <laughs> so some of the some of the characteristics of, of Columbo is that he's very unassuming. Mm. So he has a, his rumpled beige raincoat, uh, his cigar. He more, drives an old beaten up car. More beige, more brown. That's right. Yep. That's right. He loves very basic work, uh, blue collar food. Mm. Uh, he refers to his wife who is never seen mm. and... He sort of hides his genius behind this bumbling exterior. So most, you know, emblematically shown by his 
his little trade uh, trademark. One more thing. One more thing. Which he'll always he'll always use when he sort of re-enters the scene. And even even the way like his body language and the way it's shot, he's often hunching off to one side of the action, or yeah. he's in the or he's in the background. Like he's very self-effacing. Yes. And yet the pleasure ride is partly seeing. Columbo transformed from dunce to genius every episode. That's right. It's almost like comic. There's a comic element to it. That's right. It's there almost is, a comedy, yeah. There is. And I think uh, apparently a lot of the, the episodes do revolve around uh, upper class, smooth talking characters mm. who are who kind of exert their class privilege over mm. him. Mm. So there's a, there's a leveling effect that Columbo has, mm. a democratizing effect mm. that he has. I think one of the reasons why he became such a popular folk hero because he bridged that that uh, gap between that their feet upper class um, detective in the Agatha Christie mm. um, classic you know uh, country house mm. um, uh, you know murder mysteries and the more the more working class you know hard boiled detective mm. from from the the genre fiction in America so he's, he sort of straddles those two worlds that, quite nicely that's kind of thematized here isn't it because the the victim and the perpetrator are a pair of writers who have made their fortune collaborating on a Miss on a Miss Marple like yes. character. So it's and in fact the 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 murderer, um, part of the backstory is that the murder you know, the murderer and victim are ostensibly a writing duo, but the victim was actually doing most of the writing. So the murderer sees the crime as in a way his reclamation of a kind of literary voice and That's his, right. his, his his story. So he both victim and murder take place in this kind of Agatha Christie rarefied world that Columbo kind of punctures at the end. That's right. And as well as com- committing this crime, the the killer also directs the investigation. Mm. So he, he attempts to write the investigation mm. on behalf of Columbo. So a lot of the, the great interplay here is seeing how Columbo slowly sort of subverts his mm. story, um, exposes him as being as being foolish and also a bad writer. And as well, I thought that too. At the end, it's almost like when when Colum- when Columbo, you know, reveals that he's onto him. It's almost like an editor giving notes. Yes, like here's, <laughs> here's what you didn't do. Here's what you didn't get. I thought that that structure too was just it was so effective because something we've seen in a lot of these like seventies or sixties, seventies pilots, crime pilots like Streets of San Francisco is you know or something you know like even like Miami Vice jumping forward. It's like they're really amazing, but they can really sprawl. Yeah. Whereas just virtually every scene here is a really tight, suspenseful two-hander. Mm. And the whole thing revolves around this game between Columbo and the criminal. And it's just, it's it's really kind of fun to watch. Yeah. And like I said, it almost has a kind of comic, it almost lapses into pure comedy at times where yes. you have these two guys negotiating and kind of, yeah, like trying to trying to get the upper hand on each other. It's, yeah. it's a it's, really it's a, effective style. Yeah, it's a constant cat and mouse game, but mm. the, the role of cat and mouse Mm. constantly change modulate mm. so there's there's a constant contest for power mm. in this series and there's there's just you see the shift the ebbs and the flows mm. in the power dynamic between them mm. which is which i think is is you know crafted very nicely mm. another notable thing about this although this is not technically the pilot this is the first the first uh, feature length series that mm. that went to television as part of a regular mm. uh, serialized um, television show is that it was directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm. And while it's still prosaic, you might say, because given it's mm. you know, a television movie, there are some directorial flourishes mm. that I think in, certainly enhance the tension here. Mm. So there's a lot of great tracking shots, a lot of low angle shots, 
there's 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 some directorial creativity here that that, it, it, that draws out the the dynamic interplay between the, the yeah. protagonists. And I think you see that stuff especially in the opening section. You do, so, yeah. You know, one one of the benefits of this how catcher model is that you have these just these great series of yeah two hander conversations between Columbo and the victim. Oh, sorry, and the perpetrator. But it also means that the first part of the episode can almost function as a short film yeah. on its own terms. So, you know, Spielberg just, you know, completely gives that his all. Like, you have this incredible opening tracking shot that, that starts a film. It's really atmospheric, scene against a vista of L.A., then this kind of drive down to a lake house. Like, I, I want to live in that 70s lake house forever. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's incredible. But all of that... All, and all that is just so, so atmospheric and feels like a standalone Spielberg film. Yeah. And the rest of it, the craft is really great. But those moments when you... It's almost like the strongest parts of the episode are when he's able to kind of harken back to that opening mini film. So yes, the scenes yes. that take place in the lake house are great. And they're just full of these little lyrical moments that aren't kind of narratively necessary but are just beautiful and cinematic on their own terms. Mm. There's, a scene I, with, there's a scene when a woman's body is recovered from the lake yeah. and there's no need for that to be shown, but it's just, it's so, it's just such a beautiful little lyrical interlude. Mm, mm. And I think this, the mobility that Spielberg endows his camera with, yep. I think really harkens back to that hard-boiled mm. detective fiction, particularly Raymond Chandler, where yep. the detective is very mobile. Yep, moving he's around moving a lot. between between worlds. And yep. while he's still Los Angeles-based, he, he ventures out like spokes on a wheel towards mm. these these liminal spaces that mm. represent the kind of breakdown of the you know the uh, law and order I think that characterizes the, the big city so here that the liminal space of the lake house mm. is where all of a sudden you know that the the the, uh, the the normal social hierarchies you know moral proprieties that that regulate society start to sort of dissolve mm. And it, 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 I think that's a good comparison because part of what's, I guess, unique about this narrative model too is that because Columbo is so engaged in this kind of one-on-one, I guess, agon with the perpetrator, he feels quite detached from the police force as a whole. Mm. So I think he feels more like a private investigator yeah, at times than I was a police like, force. Oh, what is his relationship to the police? Yeah, like there's almost... You see the police as an institution kind of briefly, but he feels more like a sole trader mm. in many ways. And it's almost like the detectives, sorry, the, per, the, the perpetrators dismiss him as like a weird eccentric, you know, member of the, the force that the other detectives don't kind of take seriously. Yeah. So yeah. it does definitely have that Chandler-esque, yeah. you know, private investigator kind yeah. of feel. I thought it's like this opening scene remind me a lot of Hitchcock as well. Yeah, like, true. You know, the scene when they're driving down, so redolent of vertigo, there's actually a moment where one of the characters describes experiencing deja vu. Mm. There's quite a few other scenes that recall Vertigo. The music is very similar to Psycho. Like, it's interesting. Like, it, it's such an early film for Spielberg. It feels like, you know, there's so much about it that's distinctively him here, but also he is drawing upon Hitchcock. Yeah, in, in a drawing more, on his influences. In a more overt way. he was doing with Jewel as yeah. well. I was going to say, the atmospherics here are really similar to Jewel, I think. Mm. Like, there is that sense of me, that sense of just, like, just like California atmosphere, I just I just loved some of the shots. Like there's an amazing scene where the two, the Columbo's talking to the the criminal just on the balcony of the lake house, and there's like like mist coiling across the lake. There's several kind of tiers or levels of roads in the background. There's all these for like it's it's absolutely magnificently shot. Yeah, and again like it it's almost like Spielberg really shines when he can 
move back to the kind of coordinates of that opening film, mm. that that pro, mm. that, pro mm. that extended prologue. Mm. So there are scenes that are much better shot than they would even need to be. Yeah, like the scene on the on the lake where he's disposing of the body. Yep. Yep. is 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 beautifully. It's so yep. it's so Hitchcocky and the quick cutting, mm. the, the beautiful luminosity of the the mm. water under the moonlight. Mm. Um, there's it's. It's it's a it's a very beautiful pilot for something that could feel very stage bound. Does this come before? Yeah, sixty eight. Yeah, so you wonder whether it's actually Spielberg flexing his muscles as a feature director for the very first time. Mm. So just there's that real loving craft because it's, it's several years before Jewel. Mm. I wonder if it is the first sustained thing that he directed, like mm. the first feature length, because it's got that sense of that catharsis of a director finally getting to pour their vision into long-form narrative yeah and like every little corner of it's embellished like it's yeah. so loving like and, every, and as you said it's full of flourishes that don't really need to be there but are just there for the love of the craft yeah so yeah, yeah it's fantastic and I, I just love those scenes just Columbo and the criminal just that to and fro it's almost like screwball yes like that kind of screwball repartee that screwball pacing yes. characters talking slightly across purposes yeah you yeah. can see how this it's quite an actorly yeah. genre yeah. as well or TV, TV like, series yeah. as well yeah so uh. the 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 villain in this one um, one of the um, the writing duo is mm. is a very hammy sort mm. of stage type actor mm. but it really works because that that's his character and mm. and that that pretension that he has is so well skewered by yep. Columbo yeah and just yeah and as you said like the the fact he seems to belong to and writes in a completely different crime genre works so nicely alongside the hard-boiled stuff so yeah it's it's great i thought this was one of the most beautiful pilots like we've seen mm. for a long time and i was well, certainly I, one of the most comforting yeah very comforting <laughs> yeah i mean we watched it last weekend and we moment Carl and i watched it we were like we need to watch every single other clumbo episode like it's so so something even just his glass eye too like the kind of the i, I spent a lot mm. of it trying to figure out which eye was the glass eye yeah. and I, I couldn't kind of quite get a handle on yeah. it just because it's something so awry about yes. him generally, and the glass eye feeds into that. Like it's like he's never quite looking at. No, he's never quite. His gaze is never quite. Yeah, just something about him that eludes the criminal, even when the criminal thinks he's completely mastered him. So yeah, look, yeah. I thought it was an absolutely beautiful pilot. Yeah, it's incredible. So that was it. The how catch him? Yeah. So look, <laughs> I'm I'm going to give you a clue for what next week's archive corner is going to be. Yeah. Uh, the following episode of Pilot Club <laughs> will take place from 6 to 7 p.m. <laughs> next Thursday night in real time. Are we doing 24? I'm Jack Bauer. <laughs> These are going to be the longest 24 hours of my life. So I predicted so it earlier. <laughs> you did. And that was why, sorry, sorry that I didn't really kind of take the bait on that because it, I felt like if we had a discussion of 24, A, I'd give away the fact that it was the archive choice, but also we're going to discuss it next week in detail. For sure. So, For sure. I've never seen it. Yeah, I haven't seen a minute of it. It's a show that I, I completely associate with DVD. So I, I, got, I watched the first couple of seasons, got them out on DVD, watched them back to back. And I've already started actually re-watching the pilot and it's, yeah, it completely takes me back to a time and place. So yeah, fun show, fun show to discuss next week. Wonderful. I'm Looking Jack forward Bauer. to it. These are going to be the, the longest 24 hours of my life. <laughs> and it was re revived like about eight years ago, like 24 Legacy as oh, okay. well. So yeah, I'd be interested to see what the later seasons look like too because... They must be at the very least interesting. Like even if they're not as good as the first seasons, to to sustain the narrative over twenty four hours must be at least. I mean, it, it, it's a big buy in. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So next week we'll do twenty four. Sounds good. Cool. I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>